Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Mary Rose Wood wrote the six-book series, The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place, in which Miss Penelope Lumley, an alumna of Agatha Swinburne's Academy for Poor Bright Females, finds herself the governess for three children who have been raised by wolves. These are among my favorite children's books of all time, so I was thrilled when Mary Rose Wood agreed to be on the Habit Podcast. Mary Rose Wood, I'm so glad you're here on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you, Jonathan. I am delighted to be here. I am a huge fan of The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place. I painted my several rooms of my house while listening to them on audiobook. Oh my goodness, that is a that's I, no one's ever told me that before. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I, I hope the paint job came out well. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> I take full credit. I want to <laughs> I want to come over and inspect. Oh good, I would love for that to happen. Um, I, you know, when I found out that you got your start in the theater, um, that was that was not at all surprising to me, uh, given the way the way you write that that made sense to me that that you would be a theatrical person well i i hope that's a compliment yeah, you know sometimes it's just a, it's just it's just a thing you can take it as a compliment it's or a not thing. it's just true sometimes people say oh she's so theatrical you don't know if they mean it in a good way <laughs> yeah right but well but i don't thank know that you, you want to- I, I, I think I, I think I can I can frame that in a positive way for my own self-esteem but I it was a huge influence on me I really did start out as a, a as a theater buff started out loving the theater was an actor in my my distant youth yeah. and I, I liked I just really loved to think about characters and dialogue and and the the construction of scenes uh, in a really vivid way as if it's uh-huh. Play, as if it's playing out on a stage in front of you, you know, yeah. and so, um, so I'm glad that that comes across. And by the way, I, um, uh, my wife Lou Alice and I watched uh, the what's the movie you're in? The best worst thing that could have happened. It's the best worst thing that ever could have happened. It's a, it's a long and unwieldy title, kind of like the Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place. <laughs> yeah. But oh, yeah, it's but so it, wonderful that you watch that. Yes. It's a it's a documentary film that I happen to briefly appear in, as it it treats a very significant episode in my life. Yes, well, I need to watch it again because Lou Ellis and I spent the whole time just watching for you to appear on stage and couldn't pay attention to what was actually going on. Uh, but it tells it's the story of your participation in um uh i'm sorry for, uh, remind me which which play that was so it is the 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 film tells the story of the the creation the high hopes the crashing failure and the ultimate redemption of a of a broadway musical called merrily we roll along which uh had a, a brilliant score uh with music and lyrics by Stephen sondheim one of uh the American Broadway yeah. musicals, great geniuses, great inspiration to me. It was directed by um, the revered and beloved Hal Prince, who recently passed away, one mm. of Broadway's great directors, very influential theater artist, and with a script by George Firth, and it was based on an old play by Kaufman and Hart. So, right. um, and this opened on Broadway in 1981 with a cast of young people, teenagers, and people in their early 20s. Uh, so, uh, One of whom was I, you? One of whom was was me, and um, 
the musical was a kind of a ambitious tale of uh, young people who are filled with dreams and want to grow up to be artists, composers and writers. And and um, it takes place over the course of 20 years. And the, the fun thing about it, and this was taken from the original Kaufman and Hart play that was the source material, the story is told backwards. So mm-hmm. we meet the cast, we meet the characters when they're like these bitter, <laughs> unhappy, thwarted, <laughs> middle-aged people who friendships or divorces like things are just bad you know things have not yeah. gone well but then every scene in the in the show goes back a few years and you get to see um the sort of trail uh-huh. of que- questionable decisions you know <laughs> moments of going off the path and betraying a friend yeah. or you know that and so by the time you get to the end of the play you're seeing all the characters as their teenage selves full of hope and idealism. So very, you know, bittersweet. Yeah. Kind of emotionally engaging piece. So they cast all of us teenagers and, and we, we did it, you know, but the show was a resounding flop at the time <laughs> in 1981. And, um, and yet, and yet, so since 1991 and now the show's reputation has been quite restored and it's now considered really part of the canon. It's a big uh-huh. favorite. Yeah. Documentary film was made and gloriously well received, and uh, and of course the irony was now that we are the middle aged people <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> that we were portraying yeah. on the Broadway stage, and so there's there was a lot of a lot of layers, a lot of a lot yeah. of stuff to investigate. So the fi- the film is cool if you're interested in Broadway musicals, but it has something to say about growing up, even if you are not interested in Broadway musicals. It, it really so. does, and it's it. So as of this recording, at least it's on Netflix. So. Yeah, it is streamable. Yeah. Okay, well, I got I got you off off the topic of uh, what what does the um, so your your background in theater? Um, how did talk to me about how that has influenced your your writing? You, you said you you envision um, dialogue and character and I yeah I you know I just really think in terms of scenes. I mm-hmm. think um, uh, I think in terms of what each scene is going to deliver in terms of storytelling. I think in terms of how the scene is cast, I feel mm. very physically connected when I write. It's important to me. You know, for example, in a play, you've got actors on stage speaking dialogue, but then the costume designer has dressed them and the set designer has created a physical environment and the lighting designer has created a lighting scheme that sets the mood, you know. Yeah. There may be even sometimes a musical score that, uh, that's, you know, a play might have some sound design. So there's all of these sensory qualities. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a very embodied experience. That's actually a word that I use with my re- writing students often is is the embodiment, the quality of, of embodiment that when the reader is reading text on a page, that it should engage the the physical senses yeah. uh, because we want the reader to feel like they are in the story, you know? Yeah. And when I, when I think about my early ambitions to be an actor, and I still love the theater, we go all the time, um, I realized that what I was really wanting to do is to be in the story. I mm. wanted to put on my costume and get on stage and be <laughs> in the story. You know, it yeah. was a sto- it was much more of a storyteller's impulse than a performer's impulse. That's something I 
I only came to understand that about myself after I'd already had the opportunity to be a professional actor. And it's like, yeah, huh. the acting part was not really what was turning me on. The, the part that I loved was being in the like living inside storytelling. So it, it took me a, a few years. But by the time I was in my late 20s, I was like, ah, I'm a writer. It's the story. It's all yeah. about the storytelling for me. That is so interesting because, I, I, you know, I think those of us who aren't actors assume actors are doing this to, you know, uh, to, to draw attention to themselves. Yeah, I was trying to figure out a nice way to say that. Um, <laughs> uh, well, um, yeah. Actors are sometimes very shy. Yeah, you know, right. really good actors are sometimes not at all showboat type people. They're mm-hmm. often very interior. Um, that's what makes them so brilliant. So uh, it's a wonderful craft. And don't you find, as a fellow writer, don't you find that when you're writing in your zone, that you are acting out the scene, like if you're feeling the emotions of the characters, you know, that, yeah. that you're, that you're, you know, losing track of where you're sitting in time and space, that you're feeling the wind and, you know, that you're, <laughs> that's like a method acting experience where you start to engage your imagination so vividly that the, the physical inputs, you know, start to, to, to come to life. Yeah, I feel I like... As writers, we have to do that if we expect our readers to have that experience. Sure. We ha- yeah. we have to go there first. You know, I, I think that's right. That's a that's a I'd never uh, thought in terms of uh, writing as being a kind of method acting, but I I think that's right. Do you um, are you blocking your scenes as you're um, as you're writing? You mean by blocking? You mean staging them? Arranging yeah, I mean, the, the, arranging the, the really thinking about uh, about where people are in physical space. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, we have to, it has to make sense. You know, people have to open doors before they pass through them. Like the the scenes have to make a logical embodied sense. Otherwise the reader is going to go, what? That's right. (laughs) They were in the hallway a minute ago and now they're swinging from the chandelier. Like surely (laughs) there was a, a missing beat in there. And, and readers are really astute at picking those things up and it disturbs them yeah. you know it inter it yeah. interrupts them it's the kind of thing that you know sometimes when you you talk to someone you say did you like that book did you like that story and they say i couldn't get into it mm-hmm. right that's something mm-hmm. a reader will say ah, i just i started it but i couldn't get into it i love that phrase because that's literally what has to happen yeah you want the reader to get into it and if if you do something that that doesn't make sense then the reader falls out of it they're yeah. interrupted you know right. and so yeah. So that's what happens. So, um, so I do block the scenes. I absolutely do. I try to imagine the setting and I try to, you know, it's possible. And I do it quite often in the incorrigible children books. It's possible to put physical comedy, pratfalls, you know, physical farts. It's possible to put that in a novel. And when you can pull it off, it's, it's really satisfying. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Uh, I, um, uh, I'm I'm often talking to writers about the difference between information and experience, and I think a, a lot mm-hmm. of a, a lot of writers feel like if I if I it give provide the right information, the reader can figure out what's going on. Mm. Except that writers shouldn't be I mean, readers shouldn't be figuring anything out; they should be you know experiencing. Um, well, if we want to start sharing royalties with the readers, if we're going to make them doing that much of the work, <laughs> I think yeah. it's only fair that they should get compensated. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> That is our job. It's our job yeah. as the writer. You know, not that the reader doesn't bring a tremendous amount to the experience of reading. Of course, they do. Sure. They bring their imagination. They bring their focus. They give us the tr- 
the uh, priceless gift of their time. Yeah. Time is really precious. You know, if someone's going to sit down and invest the time to, to read a novel, that's, you know, that's a, it's a beautiful thing. And um, yeah, the, I, I think we have to make the experience as seamless as possible. You know, yeah. I'm a big fan of um, John Gardner's theory of the fictional dream. Is that something that you think about? No, I, tell me about that. It's a, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a cool image that I found influential. John Gardner was a, uh, he's not alive anymore, but he was a, a, a well-loved instructor of fiction writing. Yeah, I, I see him it, quoted all the time, but I've never actually it, read any of his books. It, it, you know, they're, they're definitely worth a look. It's old school stuff, but mm-hmm. sometimes old school is the best, sure. um, in, my, in my old school opinion. <laughs> uh, he talks about the vivid and continuous dream of fiction, that reading really, really good fiction for the reader should feel almost like they're having a dream. Hmm. So it should be that effortless. You know, it should feel like they have fallen in into this wonderful world. And um, we shouldn't make them work so hard to make sense of the world. If, if, they're ma- if, they, uh, if they have to make sense of it, then it's possibly, um, it's, it's, it's possibly the case that we haven't given them a fully rendered painting but we've only given them a sketch yeah. and we're asking them to fill in the colors you know and i think that we should do as much of that as we we possibly can no matter what we do the reader will fill in because they have their own spirit and emotional history and feelings and imagination that they bring to it they're going to add their own stuff yeah but i think i think we should color in as much as we can that's a that's a great reminder now, something else I've heard you say about related to acting and um, and writing is that um, because you have a background in improv, um, that has helped you uh, avoid writer's block. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't. One could talk about this at length. This notion of writer's block. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, I mean, do you believe in writer's block? I didn't used to. And what happened? <laughs> what happened? I, well, I, tell I, me. Yeah, I had a. Um, I, I went through a, a period where I was, um, and, and by the way, it was a period when I finally had lots of book contracts lined up that I just, mm. I just, you know, didn't didn't deliver. Uh, it, it felt like I couldn't deliver. Um, you know. Uh, and, and was wasting time in the most ridiculous ways a man imaginable. I mean, like mm. things like online dominoes, which is online dominoes isn't that much fun, Mary Rose. It, <laughs> <laughs> there are much there are much more amusing vices than that to yeah, procrastinate from yeah. your meeting your book deadlines. <laughs> I know, but but it was it was almost like I, I knew better than to do something fun, right? That, I would feel you know really bad if I were having fun instead of doing my. You know, I, I don't know. I, it's I yeah. just I, I reached a point. You know, I used to used to always say things like, "Well, you know, plumbers don't get plumbers block, and lawyers don't get lawyers block. So if you're a writer, you know, go write, do your job." And until, uh, yeah, man, it it just it just knocked me flat for wow a while, and I uh, finally had to go off to a to a cabin. I, there were hallucinations. It, there was all. It was. It's a long story. I'll, 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 I'll spare you the details. Was, this, was there like a shaman involved? I mean, did you really go? <laughs> Did you go on some kind of vision quest? I mean, I, uh, this is great. This could be a subject for your next book. Yeah, it, it was auditory hallucinations, but ah, but nice, I was nice. very I was very lonely. I, I, anyway, and and really, what yeah. what pulled me out of it was kind of finally realizing 
that there were people in the world who needed what I was bringing. You know, I got an email mm-hmm. from a reader who kind of said, "Hey, I kind of need this book. What's you know, where is it?" And um, and just to realize that this wasn't my little uh, personal tragedy, but but that it was, you know, that I actually had something to bring that I wasn't bringing to people. Um, wow, me. that's 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 very cool. Yeah. You know. And I think it's ever thus. It's that it's when we stop focusing so much on ourselves. Yeah, right. That yeah, you know that the that the magic can happen. So, but just, I wasn't I wasn't uh, planning on me going into the confessional. I, I wanted to hear from you. I know. With, with about. I, was cu- I was curious. <laughs> so you asked me about improv, and yeah. but I'm gl- really glad that you told that story, especially because it had such a positive ending. Uh-huh. And the thing, the thing about improv, anyone who's ever seen an improv comedy show or st- taken a class in improv, which is so much fun, and I highly recommend it if anybody's even tempted. It it is valuable in all kinds of ways, and the the core ver- uh, principle of improv is listening, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the thing about improv is that when you're up there creating a scene based on prompts from the audience, suggestions from the audience, the only thing you have to stand on is what your scene partner does. They say, you know, well, here we are in the Forest of Arden, and guess what? You're in the Forest of Arden. You don't get to say, oh, no, I thought we were in <laughs> Times Square. It's like, no, that's the rule of improv is you yeah. listen and you go with it. You say yes to whatever has been established, and you just build on it. So for me, that technique of not belaboring, you know, like, oh, is this a good idea? Is that a good idea? It's like, have an idea and say yes to it and build on it. You're only going to find out where it leads you if you just suspend judgment and stop, stop, stop observing yourself, you Mm. know, just commit to the listening. So it really does have to do with exactly what you describe, which is to kind of get out of your own way. Stop making it all about what you're, you know, what brilliant thing you're going to come up with next and just Listen to what's happening to your characters. Listen to what's happening on the page, you know. Um, For me, having done improv, having studied it, I studied it with the Groundlings in New York. Mm. There used to be a New York company of the Groundlings, which is a pretty famous, influential improv troupe. They're uh, still in Los Angeles where I live now. But when I lived in New York is when I studied with them. And I actually don't think they're in New York anymore. They had Groundlings East for a while. Um, so when I when I studied with them, I was coming out of my um, my acting days. You know, that was sort of the tail end of my acting career. I was in my late twenties, and I knew that I was not completely fulfilled by being a performer. And I had gotten really involved with creating my own theater pieces and directing other people, and just being in the more experimental theater scene that was going on in New York at that time. And when I when I did improv. that's really when the light bulb went on for me. Like, oh, this is about making up the stories and inventing the characters. It's about writing. It it really clicked for me. Like, oh, this is my, as we say in yoga, my dharma. This is my path in this Mm -hmm. life. It's it's to be the writer and and to make the stuff up. So to me, knowing how much material we can generate without like you can open your mouth and not know what you're going to say, right? Uh-huh. In fact, in co- in conversation, that's usually the case. You know, I didn't show up to this podcast with a script. Yeah. We're talking, right? Yeah, right. So, right, we're just talking. So when you open 
open your mouth, you don't know what's going to come out, but it doesn't prevent you from talking. You don't feel necessarily <laughs> like, oh, I have to plan everything I'm going to say before I can open my mouth. Writing can feel that free. You don't have to know what's going to come out before you sit down to work. And when you start to feel comfortable with that uncertainty, and that's also yoga, when you start to feel okay with the uncertainty of, I don't know what's going to come out, it makes it comfortable to sit down and begin. Hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's why I don't believe in writer's block, to an- the long-winded answer to your question. I certainly don't believe in talk- talker's block. I, talking is fine. <laughs> but, I, I, yeah, I really don't believe in it. You know, knock yeah. on wood. Hopefully it's not going to come, come visit me tomorrow. And I'll have to call you back. <laughs> well, you but, have my phone uh, number. But I don't. I, I really think I do. I'll phone a friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and also – as you can relax into the truth that that um, what does come out is there's a really good chance it's going to be better than what you had planned ahead for. I mean that's that's kind of the, the I think that's the essence of what you're talking about here. Why how how improv um, an improvisational approach to writing is is a way of of saying I'm opening myself up to some things that that I don't even know are there. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the only thing I would take exception to in what you just said was to, the word better, because I don't necessarily think that we're, we should even be worried about how good something is. I'm putting good in big air quotes, hmm. if you could all imagine that, because it sort of doesn't matter how good it is. You know, it's a first draft. Yeah. It's, real, it's really just, you're just clearing a path. Hmm. You know, you're, when you're writing a first draft, you are just clearing a path through the, the wild jungle of story possibility. You know, you're just trying to find a way through. And then once you've, you know, once you've got like a, enough of a clearing where you can see a little bit, a little, little daylight, and then you can put on your judgment hat and you can say, okay, so what, where do I want to go with this? You know, what, yeah. which part do I want to pursue, which is a dead end? You know, but I don't think we should be overly concerned with better or worse or good or bad or anything like that when when clearing those first draft paths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. I want to return to that idea of clearing a path in a minute. Um, but first, you've mentioned yoga a couple of times now. And I know one time, yeah, the, actually the one time you and I uh, have ever sat in the same room, uh, yeah. you mentioned something about yoga influencing your writing and at the time, I didn't understand even what you were talking about. And so now that I've got you again, I, I wanted, what's that about? Well, clearly, Jonathan, the, the secret to being a good writer is to be able to write while standing on your head. <laughs> is that what it is? Okay. I mean, that's, that's all I meant. No, actually, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? It does probably increase blood flow to the brain to do probably a headstand. So. so what I meant by that, and first of all, I'll just frame, you know, when I talk about yoga, because a lot of people like, oh, yoga, like, what does that mean? You go to a room and you sweat, and you exercise and stuff. Obviously, there's a physical practice in mm-hmm. yoga. But, you know, like a, a larger, more traditional, more old school way of talking about yoga is to, to look at all the practices involved with yoga, which include meditation, you know, which include physical practices, but, you know, include um, breathing exercises, you know, not mm-hmm. just the, the part that feels very like American fitness class, uh-huh. uh, which, you know, that's sometimes just a kind of a, It's a very limited representation. Uh So I feel like as writers, we we have to recognize the fact that our consciousness 
right? Our, whatever you want to call what's going on inside your brain that's not just gray matter. Mm-hmm. It's our consciousness that's driving the bus, right? Mm-hmm. We are doing something really kind of amazing, which is we're trying to have create uh, using our consciousness. We're trying to create this imagined story, this dream, right? In John Gardner's term. Yeah. And we're trying to kind of use the material tools, the gross, you know, material tools of words to put that consciousness, that energetic experience in the mind of our readers. So it's a journey from the subtle to the gross back to the subtle. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we're imagining something. We use language, which is, a, which is an incredibly flexible, I mean, a remarkable tool, but it is kind of a physical tool, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we, we put it in someone else's head and they're crying because, you know, <laughs> Charlotte the spider died. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, Who's Charlotte the Spider? She's someone that E.B. White made up. It's, it's, <laughs> it's incredible when you really think about it that way. So to me, the way that yoga really, my yoga practice relates to my writing is that um, yoga investigates the difference between the subtle and the physical. You know, it investigates, mm-hmm. uh, you know, energetic questions as they affect the physical and it investigates physical practices as they affect your energetic state. So anybody who's even done a simple meditation practice, which, you know, uh, all of us uh, from a health perspective, there's a lot of science now that says it's actually really good for sleep and Mm -hmm. managing stress. And, you know, just it's it's just to take a little quiet reflection time. And of course, many people have practices of quiet reflection, whether you have a prayer practice or a gratitude practice or, you know, any any, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever, you know, speaks to your heart. Um, those, those practices change our energetic state. You could sit in quiet reflection for, you know, for a few minutes and you open your eyes again and you feel, you can feel the change, right? You know, you just, you just, you check, you, you, you hooked in again, you know, you kind of got, you got reconnected and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And so all of these things are a benefit, you Mm -hmm. know, being, being a creative artist is not easy. You have to, you have to be. Well, and here's another thing that yoga helps me with. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's true. I have, yeah. I have a yoga teacher who used to say, if you like the pose, you're not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to be able to, you know, yoga kind of puts you in these like weird positions and leaves you there. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, but how often in life are we put in some kind of, you know, not exactly of our choosing situation and we have to, we have to rest in it for a while. You yeah. know, we just we just have to find a way to be at peace with it. And maybe it's going to teach us something. Hmm. So yo- yoga poses are kind of a very physical manifestation of that. Like uh-huh. it, be in the pretzel pose. It doesn't feel good. Stay there for a minute. Maybe it'll change or maybe mm-hmm. your opinion of it will change. <laughs> That's actually maybe you'll be able to drop your opinion of it, you yeah. know, so. So all of these ways of working with the mind are useful. Yeah, and and every story that's ever been written has, has been about somebody who got uncomfortable. Absolutely. If they were not uncomfortable, why would they need a big story to happen? Yeah. Story is an engine of change. That's what stories are. Yeah. So um, speaking of, um, the incorrigible children of Ashton Place are about a, uh, a young woman who is always in a, the uncomfortable is always in one uncomfortable situation or the other. Learning to deal with yes. those, um, and we. So, th- you mentioned a little while ago about um, the first draft clearing a path, 
And I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious how. So you, I love I love where this story uh, the to to explain the incorrigible children of Ashton Place. I mean, uh, you know, all I've all I've got to say is, see, there's this uh, there's this uh, young woman who um, who finds herself the governess of some children raised by wolves, and that setup, it just feels like some story is going to unfold from there. Something has to happen. Yeah, right. I mean, am I, am I correct in my assumption that you just started, that, that you somehow had this idea of, here's this idea, I bet if I play that out, some I could probably write six books about this. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, there was a little bit more more uh, forethought than that, but not much. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I will tell you, so I am a huge fan of the book Jane Eyre, uh-huh. as many, uh, well, many, many people I have been over, thought over you must the years. Be, yeah. Oh gosh, and and so you know we are all influenced by the books that we love, right? And yep. so there was a there was a point in my career uh, going back, I guess now about nine years when the Incorrigible Children books got going. Was it nine years? Ten years? Oh yeah, more a little more than ten years actually. The first one came out in two thousand ten, so I was writing it in the year before that. So it was a little bit more than ten from my writing perspective. Uh-huh. Uh, that I just thought, oh, I would really love to 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 write a British governess novel. Like I would love <laughs> to do that. I, is it is it okay? It's I'm an American. It's the 21st century, and I write middle grade. Can I still write a British governess novel? And I was like, I don't see why not. You know, <laughs> how would I do that? Yeah. Um, and so I thought, well, so I, c- I came up with this this notion of of doing that, but then. I was also very intrigued. I've always loved animal stories. Um, I mentioned mm-hmm. Charlotte's Web uh, a little bit I, uh, earlier. It's another book that really inspires me. Mm-hmm. I love um, some of Rudyard Kipling's animal stories. Those that I admire tr- tremendously. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I have two kids who are now thriving, grown adults. Uh, but when they were little, my son especially was a big fan of the Curious George books. Uh-huh. And I was very intrigued. I used to read these stories to him over and over again. And I was always very intrigued by the character of Curious George because he is depicted as a monkey. But he is also strangely this weird little child, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <This> rather <laughs> unusual child. And I became very... Um, uh, aware of how much uh, my son loved this character because he was a little boy, but he was also a monkey. So when he got into trouble, you couldn't really blame him, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, there's something very psychologically astute about being a young child, I think, that is embodied in that that notion of like, look, they're little kids. They can't help themselves. It's our job to, you know, to accept their their essence uh, as children, you uh-huh, know, it's uh-huh. like we can't ex- we can't go to three year olds and say don't act like a monkey because like yeah, it's a three year old <laughs> he's gonna act like a monkey, you know, and so yeah. <laughs> that's fine, you know. So um, there was something about that that I thought was really really wholesome, mm-hmm. really healthy, you know. And I just got this notion like, what if I had characters who were sort of in that liminal space between being children and being you know puppies, yeah. basically. And so the incorrigible children were born. And of course, there's that great phrase, 
you know, children who are so naughty that they must have been raised by wolves. And it's yeah. just one of those games that we writers play, right? It's like, well, yeah. what if that were literally true, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. So two interesting ideas that had nothing to do with each other, very much like an improv exercise, yeah. right? Yeah. Imagine somebody, you know, some inebriated patrons at a comedy club saying, oh, uh, give me the name of a novel, Jane Eyre. Uh, <laughs> give me a give me a saying, children raised by wolves. Like, put them together. You know, like, that's crazy, but that's what happens in an improv yeah. scene. And that those are the kinds of writing prompts that, that uh, I like to give myself because they're challenging. Yeah. But... Six books later, it definitely, I did not foresee every step of the way of, of how many, how how deep um, those books would go and uh, how heartfelt and fun they would end up being. I had a wonderful time writing them. Um, how early in the process did you know the what the big mysteries, the, the big mysteries that, that get revealed, you know, deeper into the series? Did you know some of those mysteries early on, or do those reveal themselves to you late? I knew the big one. Yeah. I'm not going to be too spoilery sure. about it, but I knew the big one. And obviously, when you've got a scenario where you've got three children who are found in the woods and they're barking and howling, right? This is not a spoiler. <laughs> this happens yeah. very early on in the first yeah. book. So this is what we have. We have three children who are raised by wolves. The um, the self-evident mystery is who, the, who are these kids? Who are their right. parents? Who left them in the woods and why? And I felt that it was only uh, it was only my duty uh, to at least know the answer to that question mm-hmm. before starting my long journey to write these books over a period of, as I say, nearly a decade. But I will tell you what I did because I'm not much of an outliner. What mm-hmm. I believe in uh, is story structure. I have a lot of. Uh, ideas about the shape of a good story, just kind of in general. I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell and the hero's okay. journey. And, uh, you know, I can nerd out about all that stuff. But um, but I don't really like to decide the actual beats of a story in advance because I feel that we learn our characters so deeply as we write them that the decisions that one makes in advance are almost always too superficial. I feel that we get so we get much deeper knowledge of our story and our characters as we write it. And so uh, any decision that I make in advance is usually just a placeholder for the deeper, more surprising uh, revelation that will happen in process. Hmm. However, I did feel that I needed to know the answer to that in order to yeah. kind of to, 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 you know, to take the people's money. So, <laughs> So I, uh, so I, imp- I did. I gave myself an improv exercise. It's exactly what I wow. did. I said, I said, okay, let's imagine that they're the world's leading expert on the incorrigible children. Let's assume that this is a real, a true story, first yeah. of all, and that the world's leading expert on the strange case of the incorrigible children of Ashton Place was giving a talk at like a, you know, a, a society of, you know, feral children experts in <laughs> London and, you know, 1875 or something. You know, I kind of gave myself this whole thing. I said, let me write that talk and let's hear what they have to say. Wow. And I actually sat down and I improvised that speech. Is that right? And I, I still have it someplace. And by the end of that speech, this expert had revealed where they were from, who left them in the woods and why, uh, what the 
deeper, spooky, unexpected connection to the the Ashton family tree was and how oh, Penelope wow. figured into it. It was really quite helpful. And when I finally got to book five, the penultimate book in the series where a lot of this stuff gets revealed, I found myself going back to that document and saying, okay, that's that's exactly right. That wow. is what happened. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. Wow, that is so fun to hear. All right, I got to wrap this up, Mary Rose. Um, I wanted to talk about your uh, Swanburn Academy membership for families. Maybe we we'll have to put some of that in the show notes, if that's okay. Oh, that's sure. That's fine. Um, and um, but uh, I always end with this question: um, Who are the writers who make you want to write? This is such a great question. Uh, I don't think anyone ever decided to be a writer without being a fan of some yeah. earlier genius. I love Shakespeare. I yeah. love the, um, I mentioned Stephen Sondheim, an yeah. idol of mine, an absolute idol of mine when I was young. I, I was so enamored of his brilliant wordplay in the lyrics that he has written to his many musical theater masterpieces, the sophistication of his storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I fell in love with Jane Eyre when I was 12 years old and wow. have read it countless times since. Char- Charlotte's Web is like, a book that I could, I'll never get sick of rereading. Um, mm. So, so I have, yeah, these are, these are some, Oh, and the Hobbit. Oh, oh yeah. man. I'm a super fan of the Hobbit and I will, at the risk of annoying any huge Tolkien fans, not Lord of the Rings. I'm not talking about Lord of the Rings. That's fine. You uh-huh. can have your Lord of the Rings. I can reread the Hobbit, you know, yeah. twice a year and with great pleasure and find new things in it each time. Good to know. I I love, I, I love the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, but uh, but the Hobbit at least is short. <laughs> it's a virtue. <laughs> it's, That's right. It's, it is a virtue, and it's complete unto itself, which I think is also a virtue. Yes. All right, Mary Rose. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun for me. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I'm so grateful you asked me to come on. Well, let's talk again soon. Definitely. Thanks. Bye. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.